Uh, please open your Bible, if you will, to the book of Ecclesiastes. If you have one along, Ecclesiastes, we're going to do something we've not done in our 10-year history, and that is preach out of the book of Ecclesiastes. It's a uh, peculiar book. You read some weird verses in the book of Ecclesiastes like these. For the fate of the children of Adam and animals is the same. All are going to the same place. All come from dust and all return to dust. Can anyone prove, really, that the spirit of man goes up and that the spirit of animals goes downward into dust? You animal lovers appreciate that verse because it insinuates that quite possibly there is an animal heaven. Woohoo! In other words, Solomon's saying animals and humans, they live different lives, but they are exactly alike in their death. They're in a tomb someplace. It doesn't matter whether you uh, have discovered or helped develop quantum physics or if you've played with a ball of yarn your whole life. Uh, you're all going to be dead one day. Isn't that encouraging? Okay. How about this one? Everything ends the same for everyone. The same fate awaits the righteous and the wicked, the good and the bad. It's not exactly the message we hear preached in church, is it? Plus, there's some really strange advice like this. Be not ov overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you wear yourself out? Making yourself too wise or being overly righteous. Why should you wear yourself out? Or just some odd fashion advice. Wear fine clothes and a splash of cologne. We read that in the book of Ecclesiastes. Maybe some of you could use that advice. No, I'm just teasing. Or just some odd, uh, let's see. Uh, here's another one. If two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Okay. Commentators are clear. This is not about intimacy. This is not about sex. This is a metaphorical picture about friendship. So if it's cold on the outside and you're traveling with a friend, instead of traveling uh, alone, you've got some with, someone to cuddle with, uh, per se. How many of you guys are, are, are glad you haven't had to apply this verse with your hunting buddies yet, right? It's just kind of an awkward thing. And then there are these verses that you just don't know what to do with that seem contrary, at least at first, to what the Bible says elsewhere. Wine makes life happy, and money is the answer for everything. That's found in the book of Ecclesiastes. And then some really political, uh, or I should say politically incorrect verses like this one. I found one upright man among a thousand, but not one upright woman... <laughs> among them all. Imagine putting that as like your email verse, right? And only to mess with people below your signature. Um, what about this one? If a tree falls to the north or to the south in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. Okay, it's like, thank you, Captain Obvious, right? Okay, it didn't even tell us if it was going to make a sound when it hit the ground, if, if no one was around to hear it. So what in the world do we do with all this? Um, are you starting to get a picture of how hard my job is? How do you handle a book like Ecclesiastes? We're not going to do this book as we probably will never do Proverbs in a verse-by-verse -verse, uh, style expositorily just because it's so disconnected line-by-line, uh, sentence-by-sentence, thought-by-thought that it's hard to bring it together unless you do so like we're going to do over the course of a couple weeks and trying to, to string some of it together in a theme so that it makes sense. And, and what we'll find 
is at times uh, Ecclesiastes is confusing, but at other times it's one of the most clarifying books in all of the Bible. And it rattles us because it shakes some very tidy, clean, neat views of the world that we hold dear, but that may be in error. Some of you have literally heard thousands of sermons in a church someplace over the course of your life. Um, and, and yet, this book will make you say, at times, as you're reading it, oh my goodness, it lasts. Like, I didn't get that. I didn't know that. I didn't put two and two together. And so that's a good thing. Um, we're only going to be in it again for a couple weeks. Edgar is doing a series on missions that they felt they really needed to do at their location. So we're going to, we're going to, uh, I won't say kill some time. It's going to be fruitful time, but we're going to do our own thing and, and get started. This is how the book of Ecclesiastes opens. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem, absolute futility, says the teacher. Absolute futility. Uh, everything is futile. What does a person gain for all his efforts that he labors at under the sun? So our first question is, who wrote the book? And you read this verse and you say, well, duh, it's Solomon, because Solomon was a son of David. Solomon was a king of Israel. Uh, Solomon had everything that he wanted, wisdom and women and riches and power. Um, but as he said, um, they left them all empty. So it must have been Solomon. And that is true, but there's actually... Uh, an additional voice in this book. There are two voices, not one. One is the teacher, yes, uh, who is Solomon, uh, who talks about the meaninglessness of all of life's accomplishments. Um, the other voice is that of an editor who makes comments on what the teacher is saying. Okay? Sometimes the editor confirms what the teacher Solomon says. Other times, the editor corrects what the teacher Solomon says. Um, now, is it possible that Solomon is both voices? As in, Solomon gives us his perspective as a man who forsook God and didn't obey and spent years chasing power and pleasure, uh, but then corrects himself because later in life he comes back to God, um, as if he wrote this on his deathbed, as if it's kind of like a, a recollection. Uh, maybe it's possible. However, 1 Kings, which contains the full story of Solomon's life, gives us no indication that Solomon came full circle and at the end of his life repented and turned his life back over to God, which you would think we would be told, and so we're unsure. Another option is that some later editor took Solomon's musings and put them down in a book and through divine interpretation gave us some clarity in all of Solomon's confusion. So in that scenario, you have two different authors, Solomon, who, who in his later life lived like a fool, an absolute fool, and then this editor who compiles the writings and corrects him as he goes. So which one is it? We don't know. We simply don't know. Uh, the good news is, however, that neither uh, of those 
uh, authorships, whether one person or two, changes how we interpret this book. The important thing to, to notice is that there's simply two voices. Okay? Um, that's how we make sense about what confuses us. Another thing you may have noticed right away is the word futility. That word is repeated 38 times throughout this book. You may have in your Bible translated the word meaninglessness or vanity um, or emptiness. Scholars say that none of these words truly um, captures what is meant by the Hebrew word, which is hevel. Everybody say hevel, which means smoke or a vapor or clouds. Um, when I was a kid, I looked up at giant pillowy clouds, and you know what I thought to myself? I cannot wait. This is how um, kid-like my approach to the kingdom was. I thought Jesus' primary goal of getting me to heaven was so that I could jump on those pillowy clouds. And I thought that was going to be my reward. And I looked forward to that and I couldn't wait. And I was really depressed when I flew on an airplane for the first time and discovered that they weren't pillowy. They were wispy. And if I jumped on them, even the thickest of clouds, I'd plummet right through them and down to the earth. So that bothered me. They looked solid and substantive from the outside, from the ground, but when you got close, when you got close, there was nothing there. And that's what Solomon is saying about life. Life looks substantive. Like substantive. Life looks amazing and put together and, and uh, cohesive. But when you really get into it, it's full of nothing. That's Solomon's take. There's Hevel. Um, Solomon's saying, you know that big cloud expectation you have, again, that's life, it's empty. One scholar said the best translation of Hevel is absurdity. Life has some quality about it that doesn't even make sense. And this book comes right after Proverbs, which is very intentional about wisdom and how you ought to pursue wisdom and the effect that, that will happen to you if you pursue wisdom. It's almost as if it's a book of guarantees. You do A and God will give you B. We read things like, if you do this, this will happen. If you honor the Lord with your first fruits, then he will bless you. If you work like the ant and save up all your money, then you will leave an inheritance for your children's children. If you... Uh, show your kids the ways of the Lord. When they grow old, they will not depart from them. There's this if-then feel to the whole book of Proverbs. And they're great pieces of wisdom. And often following those pieces of, of wisdom will lead to success and honor and, and, and godly children and, and riches. Um, more so if we live opposite of what the book of Proverbs suggests. But here's the thing, and this is what Ecclesiastes rightly points out and brings to the table that Proverbs doesn't. The advice of Proverbs is not foolproof. That's why it's called Proverbs, not promises. It doesn't always work out like Proverbs suggests it will if you do this first. They're general principles. 
they're the way things typically work out if you do this. But there are a lot of faithful Christians who read the, the book of Proverbs and who memorized the verse about the ant and then lost everything they had in 2008 when the stock market crashed right before they were about to retire. Yes or no? Did you know anybody like that? Or they put others first in their business because that's what believe, they believe God would have them do. And they went out of business to a competitor who put nobody except for themselves and enriching themselves first. Or I know some people like this. They faithfully raise their kids according to God's ways. And they're still now about to enter their 40s prodigals. They've yet to come back. They've still drifted. All to say that Ecclesiastes brings this truth that Proverbs doesn't emphasize. Life is not fair. It's not fair. Sometimes somebody else gets the credit. Or you get passed over for a promotion. Or you were the wrong gender for, for whatever job you were trying to apply for. Sometimes life is glitchy. Sometimes it's Hevel. That's what our author is saying. Which leads me to the final phrase of, of this opening verse, under the sun. That phrase is repeated like 29 times throughout this book. The teacher indicates, uh, basically in saying under the sun, that the whole perspective of this book takes place from an earthly pers perspective. What is over the sun? Heaven, Right? So Solomon isn't necessarily in all of this, in all of, of his contemplating, giving us a kingdom mindset when he's talking about how, how vain everything is. He's giving us an earthly mindset. He's deliberately leaving out heaven's perspective or how the reality of God changes it all. Thank goodness for the editor. That's where the editor comes in. So throughout the book, the editor is the one reminding us, hey, hey, there's more to life than what you see under the sun. That, that's all Solomon talks about. And so for some of you, uh, this book is going to be a real encouragement for you because it's going to remind you that God is there even when life is hevel. Okay, everybody say hevel. All right. For others, you may be rattled because you may have a neat and tidy view of God. If you do A, God then does B. Okay? I know a lot of people who grew up under that teaching. If you do A, God will automatically do B. And when B didn't happen, their lives fell apart. Because they didn't know how to deal with C. They have been told C would never happen if they did A. And so I want some of you to know that God will not always do B. Just because you do some good thing does not mean that God will always do some blessed thing. Um, that is to say, if I make every God-honoring decision over here, my life will be smooth sailing forever. That is not a promise of God. That perspective is going to get shattered, as a matter of fact, in this book. 
And while it may be uncomfortable, I trust that it will be healthy and good and centering and grounding because at some point in life, the hevel is going to hit the fan. It just will. Something's going to happen that wasn't a part of, of your plan. And so I, I hope that you will remember this, that God is still on the throne, that he's still in charge, that he still loves you, and that he said that you can anticipate trouble in this life. That's gospel. That's the truth. So first thing I want to show you is some, some ways that Solomon experienced life. Um, first, what was absurd? What was absurd? First, there was the absurdity of pursuing pleasure and power. There's the absurdity of pursuing pleasure and power. Um, look at uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 1, 3, 10, and 11. I'll read all of them. Verse 1, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. Enjoy yourself, heart. I'm going to test you with a bunch of pleasure. Just have fun. Verse 3, I explore with my mind the pull of wine on my body, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. Solomon is like the sophomore that wakes up after a party in college with, with like a face tattoo, <laughs> not knowing where it came from, and realized that he or she had journaled the whole thing while drunk. Okay, had, had written down about the whole the whole happening, okay? Verse 10, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. Wow, pastor, I didn't know that was in the Bible. No, that is in the Bible from an earthly perspective of Solomon who was not at the time living according to God's will and God's pleasure, but rather his own. Do you remember all that Solomon had? Everything. Everything in his house was made of gold. He was multi-talented, well-read. He was a polymath. He knew everything about any subject. He was a Renaissance man, if you will. His power was essentially unchallenged. Nobody could overrule him or veto him. He ate great food. He had a thousand different sexual options every single night of the week. He wrote best-selling books. He uh, was one of the most prolific songwriters of his day. He was uh, an architectural mind. He built uh, Solomon's temple, which was one, one of the most impressive, beautiful structures the world has ever seen. And he led Israel to a national revival. Okay, how many of you would say, that's a pretty good list of accomplishments, except for the thousand wives and concubines thing? Then, verse 11, I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was useless and like striving after the wind and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Okay? Solomon basically tells us that these things were unfulfilling. He said, I thought I would feel complete if I had an excess of pleasure and power, but I didn't. And here's the thing, multiple times throughout the book, Samuel said, money is good. Pleasure is good. Sex is 
good. Health is good. They're all gifts of God for us to enjoy. But when they become the primary place where human beings seek fulfillment and happiness, he and we will find them empty, meaningless. Did you know there's a modern stat that shows that people who have their basic needs met are happier than people that live below the poverty line. That is true. People that have their basic needs met that live just above the poverty line are indeed happier than people that live below it. However, however, the study also showed that over $75,000 a year in household income, there is absolutely no correlation between net worth and happiness. Isn't that remarkable? Someone that, that, that makes, according to the study, $150,000 a year family income is no happier than, than, than someone who makes $75,000 a year family income, according to the study. So, this is exactly what Solomon's telling us. Having your needs met is awesome. God provides him. Money and income are good, but when a good thing becomes a God thing with a little g, that's a bad thing. Amen? When a good thing becomes an idol, that's a bad thing. It leaves you empty. Here's the truth that, that, that I want to begin with and end with. Most people don't understand, and the editor explains this to us. There is money, there are relationships. And then, distinct from them, is the God-given ability to enjoy them. And they're separate. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 6, verse 1. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them. But a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It's a grievous evil, says Solomon. For a happy life, Solomon has learned that you not only need to have an adequate amount of money and the right relationships, but you need to have a God-given ability to enjoy what you have. And God apparently doesn't give it, Solomon's learned, to everybody. That you have to seek in a different way. There's a hip-hop star named Drake who became really, really popular in the last uh, NBA finals to a whole other crowd because he sat on, on the front row uh, at the Raptors' home court and rubbed the coach's shoulders and, and yelled at um, all the, the, the players. And, and he said this in an interview, however, there was a point where I felt like I needed to keep the company of a different woman every night. I was trying to fill a void. But in those moments after sex, I knew it wasn't working. Those quiet moments are the uh, easiest, are the, excuse me, realest moments a man will ever have in his life. The next day, I would convince myself to do it again, but during that time, I knew it wasn't working. It's exactly what Solomon says. Pleasure and power are unfulfilling by themselves. He also says they're fleeting. And for a number of reasons. Um, first of all, did you know when, you're di when you die, you're dead? Did you know that? When you die, you're dead. 
It's true. And so nothing you have accomplished benefits you any longer. Here's how Solomon puts it. Chapter 5, verses 15 and 16. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as man came, so shall man go. And what gain is there for him who toils for the wind? Solomon says, you, you came naked, you leave naked. It doesn't matter what you accomplish. You go out just like you came in. Jerry Seinfeld, who became famous for making a show about the hevel of life, if you will, um, says it really starts before death. He says, I quote, your last birthday and your first one are eerily similar. You just kind of sit there. You're the least excited person at the party. You don't even realize that there is a party. At both, people help you blow out the candles. You can't do it. You don't even know why you're doing it. You're like, what is that ritual? What is going on? At your first birthday party and your last one, other people have to gather your friends together for you. Sometimes they're not even your friends. They decide. They bring them in. They sit them down. They tell you, these are your friends. Tell them, thank you for coming to my birthday party. And you know what? Solomon is exactly right. Apart from God, what does one gain? We can't take anything with us. Ecclesiastes 5.17, Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness in much vexation and sickness and anger. Eats in darkness means you work late and you eat alone. That's what that means. Then you die. Solomon's saying you leave it all with a trust fund kid who doesn't appreciate it and they waste it and you think, but they'll always remember how awesome I was. Not necessarily. Mark Twain said, the world laments you for an hour and it forgets you forever. That is in large part true. And even if they do say some nice things about you for an hour, you cannot hear those nice things. Why? Because you are dead, right? Isn't this an encouraging sermon? This is like great. And if you're not discouraged yet, Solomon also says that what we do when we're alive doesn't even make that big of an impact. Ecclesiastes 1 verse 4, generations come, generations go, but the earth remains forever. Ecclesiastes 1, 7 and 8, all streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome or hevel. In other words, we don't make that much of an impact. The tide comes back in. Torn jeans come back in. When you think of it, what has really changed in 30 years? Not much from his perspective, from an earthly perspective. When I was in Bible college, I had a Strong's Concordance. Every future minister had to have a Strong's Concordance. It saddens me that Strong spent his whole life creating a volume that I don't need any longer and can figure out with a few letters typed into Google. Hey, this is just what he did, okay? Our work is so fragile. That's what Solomon's saying. Pleasure and power is fleeting. Last one. 
Pleasure and power are unpredictable. Solomon spends a lot of time, and from an earthly perspective, he's exactly right, talking about blind chance and how much blind chance actually plays a role in all of our lives. And he says, this is really going to mess with you if you're an everything happens for a reason kind of person, which actually is found nowhere in the Bible and is not true. But, but this is what he says, uh, chapter 9, verse 11. Again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor the bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. In other words, two people make the same life decisions. One ends up a billionaire and the other ends up broke. That's what he's saying. Not even righteous living, he's saying, guarantees success on earth. Verse 15 of chapter 7. In my vain life, I've seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. In other words, sometimes the godly die early. Sometimes the rich, or rather the, the uh, wicked, live long. And Solomon even said this, believe it or not. Chapter 1, verses 16 through 18. I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also, wisdom, who wrote Proverbs? Solomon. And he says, wisdom also is like chasing after the wind. For in much wisdom, verse 18, is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. In other words, the more you know, the more you discover you don't know. And that's depressing to Solomon. What the hevel? <laughs> What are we to make of all this, right? Solomon says, furthermore, you can never really figure out the ways of God. He says that. Chapter 3, verse 11, no one can discover the work God has done from beginning to end. Some of what God's doing, in other words, we'll grasp, but we'll never understand all of what God is doing. Hello, have you figured that out yet? We don't know what God's up to all the time. Verse 12 of chapter 12, be warned, there is no end to the making of many books and much study wearies the body. Can you believe he said this? Every student in the room says, amen, <laughs> right? How many of you would say, everything I read about parenting has made me an amazing parent. I feel less comf competent and confident after stuff I read about parenting. Not more confident. Before I had kids, I had four sermons on parenting. Now I have four kids and no sermons on parenting, okay? This is how this works, right? We grow less competent as we move along at times. You can read every book and still not know what's going on. So Solomon says, even trying to gain wisdom as a way of mastering life is foolish, then he says next, justice is absurd. 
Chapter 8, verse 14, I'll paraphrase this one. The righteous who get what the wicked, the righteous get what the wicked deserve and the wicked get what the righteous deserve. How is that right? This too is meaningless. How many of you hate it when the powerful are not held to account? Yeah, it stinks, doesn't it? How many of you hate it when you see injustice or somebody gets wrongly accused? Shannon and I watched the Netflix documentary, Making of a Murderer, and just recently I saw on the news that the guy who actually committed the murder, whether this is uh, true or not, um, I, I, it was reported that, that somebody else confessed who's sitting in jail for another crime. Okay? It, 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 as we're watching that, it bothers us, the idea that someone might pay time for something they did not do, whether it's true or not. So Solomon isn't saying that we shouldn't fight for justice. He's saying that full justice in this life is impossible to attain. So if that is all you commit your life to, you will miss out on life. Here's a summary of what he said so far. No matter what you do, life is hevel. It is, it's chaotic. It's crazy. Wisdom does not guarantee success. Time and chance affect all people. And, and how many of you think this is the worst sermon I've ever heard in my life? And I'm like, it's Solomon's sermon. It's not mine, all right? I'm just bringing it to your attention. But what do we do with this? And we're going to get more into this next week. But here's what I want to say in, in closing. I'll be, I'll be brief. We need to fear God Chapter 12, verses 13 through 14. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. So at the very end, and this is the editor taking us to the view over top of the sun, He's given us a heavenly perspective. There is a God, he says, who will bring ultimate justice and with whom we will live and enjoy perfect happiness for all eternity. We need to keep that in mind. We need to fear God. Who will reward good? Who will punish evil? It will be God. It will be the man over the sun. That's going to happen. And while it's true that nobody can fully comprehend what takes place under the sun, just because we cannot find meaning does not mean that there is no meaning. Do you know that? Just because we're not certain about why things happen in life doesn't mean that there is no certainty. It just means that we don't understand. Ecclesiastes' purpose is showing you in showing you the absurdity of life is not to turn us into atheists. That's not his purpose. It's to turn us into theists, those who believe in God, but who are also humble. Humble theists. It's to remind us that life is more than simple formulas. It just is. It's complex. There's cause and effect, but it's not always cause and effect. And there's a whole lot of life that we can't explain. And that's okay because we're on the underbelly of heaven. Amen? This is so assuring to me. There's a God who knows what we cannot know. And we know him. And that is awesome. Job was a guy who had everything go wrong. 
everything go wrong when he did everything right. He never did understand fully. In fact, his buddies gave him all the wrong information. We are privy to a backstory. We know in the opening chapter of the book what actually happened. And what I want you to know is that there is a backstory to our lives that we will never know, like Job never knew the backstory to his own. We can't see it all. To Job and to us, it feels like heaven. But God's on the throne. He's sovereign. And so in a strange, unorthodox, even paradoxical way, the author of Ecclesiastes is, is pointing us toward Jesus Christ. Because we look around and we say, what's the point? What's the point of this all? Why is this all going to pot? Why is nothing making sense? And then Jesus shows up in the New Testament and he says, there is a point. God has not forgotten you. you. You matter so much that he sent me. I'm here to get you out of the hevel and into my presence. And so I guess I want to encourage you guys to keep asking and even embracing your questions. Embrace the chaos that is life. Embrace the absurdity that is life on this side of glory. And enjoy the beauty of it all. Because you'll never be able to guarantee success and you'll never be able to ensure that chance won't affect you and you'll never be able to achieve perfect justice no matter how hard you strive. Ecclesiastes 5.18, three verses that I'll leave you with, they're short ones to, to get to the nuts and bolts of this. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life God has given him, for this is his lot. Verses 24 and 25 of chapter 2. There's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God, for apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? So in conclusion, this is what I want to tell you. I want to come full circle. Joy in life is a gift that God gives that is independent of resources and accomplishment and pleasure. And it's from the Father above who gives us good and perfect gifts. It does not come automatically with wealth. It does not come automatically with relationships. So who gets it then? Who gets the gift of joy? Chapter 2, verse 26, I'll close with this one. For to the one who pleases him, who pleases God, God has given wisdom and knowledge, and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give, I'll insert, joy to the one who pleases God. Let's pray. Father, I just pray for our, our church people, and, and God, I, I do pray the A's 
and, and B's of, of Proverbs. I, I do pray the cause and effect of, of Proverbs over our church people. I pray, Lord, that you would bless them immensely. But Lord, I pray that you would help us understand in this series of only a couple weeks that, Lord, you give a gift of, of joy and it comes from you and it's to be sought after and, and pursued independent of the things we pursue to get it. They're just not connected. And I, I pray, God, that while you value, while you, I, I pray that while you value Christians being those with resources in, in order to give and to bless and to, and to send, Lord, that you would remind us that no pleasure in life is truly pleasurable apart from your gift of joy. You enable us to enjoy the things the experiences of life. And I pray that we would honor you and obey you and seek you so that we might find joy in our few days that we have under the sun. In Jesus' name, amen.